0: Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. On this episode, Just Pursuit, a book talk with Laura Coates, discusses her new book, Just Pursuit, a black prosecutor's fight for fairness, as it details and reflects on her time as a prosecutor with firsthand experiences in the US justice system and its impacts on communities of color. Laura Coates is a CNN Senior Legal Analyst, Sirius XM host, and an adjunct professor at the George Washington University School of Law. Coates also served as Assistant United States Attorney for the District of Columbia and a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, specializing in the enforcement of voting rights throughout the United States. This lecture was recorded on February 3, 2022 subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Good
2: afternoon.
1: afternoon. Hey, excellent, thank you. Good afternoon, welcome. I'm Gary Jenkins. I'm Dean of the University of Minnesota Law School. And I wanna thank all of you for joining us today to hear from Laura Coates, one of our distinguished alumna. She will be in a moderated discussion with Professor Mitch Zamoff, and they will be discussing her new book, Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. Now, I would like to start by giving a special thank you to the law school's Diversity and Belonging Affinity Council for co-sponsoring this event. And before we begin, a few notes. First off, today's event is being recorded. Uh, We will reserve time at the end for uh, Ms. Coates to address questions. And following the program, Please join us um, outside for some light refreshments. Um, and also anyone is welcome to stop by the law school bookstore to purchase their own copy of Just Pursuit um, if they like. Come on, this is a book tour, you right? You, you got to promote. I do not know how to put it. Uh, And and Laura will be available to sign books, um, actually, um, outside the store up until 1.30. Also, another, uh, just FYI, we do have what we call an event variance for this event which allows our two participants to be unmasked. uh, And uh, I guess we didn't include the dean in that request, uh, but whatever. But, uh, uh, but, but that was done with university guidelines, that they are the appropriate distance from each other, and most importantly, from the audience, the 12 feet um, uh, there. So that's just an FYI uh, uh, with respect to our masking policies. Our moderator today is Professor Mitch Zamoff. He is a clinical professor of law, director of the law school's litigation program, and co-director of the law in practice program. Those of you who have taken a class with Professor Zamoff know that he is truly an engaging and gifted educator. He has had an enormous impact as a mentor and supporter to so many in our community. Thank you for moderating today. And one of the many joys of being dean is meeting so many of our distinguished alumni. And there's no better treat than spending times with time with the smart, the insightful, and the very funny Laura Coates class of 05. She's had and continues to have an enormous impact in advocating for justice and fairness in our legal system. Currently, her perch, or I should say perches, for doing so include her positions as a CNN senior legal analyst, a Sirius XM host, and an adjunct professor at the George Washington University School of Law. And that foundation was laid by her time as a former federal prosecutor Laura served as an assistant US, uh, United States attorney for the District of Columbia, and a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, specializing in the enforcement of voting rights throughout the United States. As a civil rights attorney, she traveled throughout the nation, supervising local and national elections, led investigations into allegations of unconstitutional voting practices, in private practice, Laura was an intellectual property litigator with expertise in First Amendment and media law. In addition to her Minnesota law degree, she's also a graduate of Princeton University. She resides in Washington DC with her husband and two children. Uh, they just leave. They're waving. They're <laughs> waving. <laughs> they can, they, they, perhaps, perhaps they'll follow in the profession.
3: You're very humble, <laughs> shy children, Dean. Don't point
1: that out. Uh, she also graciously serves on the law school's board of advisors. So I'm really very grateful uh, for everything that she does for our law school. So I will say welcome, or m- more importantly, welcome back.
3: Thank you. Uh,
1: now, let me just say a word before I turn it over to Professor Zamoff. Um, In her terrific new book, Just Pursuit, she explains that even with the best intentions, the pursuit of justice creates injustice. The vast racial and economic disparities between arrests, convictions, legal representation, sentencing, parole, and many, many other areas of the legal system continue to mirror the injustices in society. But with empathy, with a critical eye, she helps lawyers and non-lawyers alike see the structural injustices and inequalities in our countries are woven into our legal system at the very core. And this book and her journey as a black woman and prosecutor reckon the realities of working in our flawed legal system while pursuing justice. The pursuit of justice isn't perfect. Institutions aren't perfect. But as we continue to listen more, to learn more, seek opportunities for change in the legal system and in the administration of justice, as we engage in our core mission here at the law school of education and outreach and scholarship, We must all continue to ask questions, to listen to communities most impacted by disparities and continue to dismantle barriers to justice. And if we do that, I think we are positioned to lead, to make an impact in our profession and in in our communities. It might not be perfect, but a difference will have been made, and that too would be a just pursuit. Please join me in welcoming Professors Zamoff and Laura Coates.
3: Well that was nice, I paid him for saying all that, so that's nice, thank you Dean.
2: <laughs> yeah, thank you Dean Jenkins for that introduction. I, I guess instead of doing a Socratic method format on the book, I'm tempted to just call on people and ask them about particular chapters, but instead of doing that, <laughs> Relax. (laughs) Let's Uh, ask my
3: husband first, which one did you like? I'm just kidding, (laughs) Uh,
2: For those who are going to be buying the book shortly and have not yet read it, why don't you start by just giving everybody a flavor for what this book is about?
3: So, you know, first of all, I'm so glad I'm here, and thank you all for coming out. It's really nice to see all of you. I know there's a million places you could be, and thank you for being here, it's very nice. And I have to say, you know, um, because many of you, obviously, are still in law school, you can readily understand what a legal textbook looks like and how you're following a particular case and working backwards contextually, et cetera. For me, while it was appealing in law school, I was not wanting to write that book. I very much am compelled by and persuaded by and invested in storytelling. It's what really drew me to the practice of law in general. And and I really wanted people to go on a vicarious journey about not just, as I comment on CNN, what the law is and how it's interpreted, and you all know this, but what the law feels like. What justice feels like. What that process is really like for so many. And so I chose a way through storytelling and using episodic tales. Each chapter really stands alone. And um, it's about personifying through the storytelling that I have experienced, personifying First of all, there's a gadget in my son's bag that I'm hearing right now out of my ear so I'm making me laugh, but I'm also a mother and that's included in the book as well so I'm not bothered if you're not. Um, It's just life, kids. And so I, I made sure to personify each of the issues that are in the national zeitgeist of conversation. Conversations around mistaken identity to what the Me Too movement is really like in not the court of public opinion but in the court of justice and a court of law. And what it's like really to never have the luxury of walking into any room and shedding your personal identity or facets of yourself. None of us have that luxury. You walk in as you are, and you will find you have to do it unapologetically. Otherwise, you will be tempted to conform to somebody else's definition of how the practice of law should be done. And I think it's incumbent upon, through storytelling and understanding where we are, to really go on that journey with one another.
2: The stories are amazing. I don't know how many of you had a chance to experience them, but each one is rich, vividly told, tremendous detail. Out of the thousands of vignettes you experienced as a prosecutor, how did you select these? What was the process like to select these to include in the book?
3: Well, it's hard to curate sort of the experiences you have. Um, And you know, you can imagine over the time in justice alone, there are so many stories, so many moments that I found myself questioning and having these personal battles of allegiance about who I was, what I believed in, and my moral compass pointing one direction, and then the directives of an office pointing in a different direction. And I really flesh out those moments where there's this chasm between what ought to be and what actually is. And I focused on areas that I was talking about as part of the conversation we were all having issues anywhere from our immigration policy and how it intersected with our practice of law all the way through with voting rights, which is, if you haven't heard, it's an issue these days. There's a a slight problem I'm hearing about. I I read it once, maybe it was a Wordle I saw it in, something like that, but I know it's still an issue. And so I I really wanted to curate the stories in a way that I thought were most impactful, but I began with a story that was particularly difficult for me um, to, to write and obviously more difficult for the person who was victimized by it to experience. And I, as, as the Dean talked about, it might sound counterintuitive that the pursuit of justice can create injustice. But we often think about our justice system, which more often than not is a legal system aspiring to be a justice system, much like America is aspiring to be who it is on paper still to this day, and um, Sometimes we think about it in a binary way of justice means a verdict. Either it's a conviction or it's an acquittal, that is it, right? It's the affirmation of an opinion or maybe it's overturned, that is it. But in reality, if you think about it that way, then that means the ends is how we just justify all the means, which we're not ever really comfortable with. And I begin the book talking about um, a man named Manuel who had come to the country illegally as a teenager. It had been decades since he arrived. He had not so much as sneezed in the direction of a police officer during his time here, was a man who raised his family here, was gainfully employed, was a contributing member to the society, all the things you want to know about a person in terms of their civic responsibility. But his crime, so to speak, was remaining in the country illegally, but the crime committed against him was how we met, and that was his car was stolen. He goes out of his house one day, opens his door, and there's no car. So he reports that the car has been stolen, and that sets off a chain of events that eventually leads to me, who's inherited this case. And when I inherited it, you know if you ever have heard about being a prosecutor or sometimes a volume of drinking through out of a fire hose. The volume of cases, sometimes you're inheriting cases that are having trials the next day or the day after. So when I got this case inherited from a colleague of mine, I ran a background check on all the witnesses who would go into the courtroom, which is standard practice. And his active deportation warrant pinged. And I was faced with this dilemma compared to the person who had committed the crime with an extensive rap sheet of somebody you should be holding accountable for what he has done wrong in a strict sense of what criminals have done, but instead the office directive was that they would be treated equally in terms of detention, that they would be both held to account for their purported crimes. And I can tell you that was one of the most challenging moments as a prosecutor because it was an injustice in my mind for them to be equated in any way, let alone for me, a black woman, to have the life that I've had, to have, and I believe, a really kindred spirit just in the history of America with all those that are similarly marginalized or laws that are impacting people of color differently. And as a civil rights attorney, to go in and have that moment of, I have to contact ICE and have this man, the deportation proceedings initiated. What if this was a sexual assault victim? What if this was a homicide victim? Do we look at this the same way, that the crime that this person um, was reporting, that, or their families were reporting on their behalf, makes them face the difficult, impossible choice of remain in the shadows, Professor? Or do what we ask our society to do, which is to report crimes? And I can tell you in that moment, if it hadn't been clear before then, it was immediately clear that while while holding a cell phone to this man's ear and to my own, putting his password in, trying to contact his wife, trying to be a blockade between him and the ICE agents, who couldn't understand why I, as a prosecutor, gave a rip about someone with so-called unclean hands, and having to become his advocate in the moment as well. And this very tense moment, obviously, that I write about, that's how it begins. And um, I suffer no fools in my commentary. I don't leave myself out of the criticism at all. And it was a moment when I wondered, as a prosecutor would I be a champion of those who were harmed or complicit in their victimization, even inadvertently? And these are the things we don't talk about in the pursuit of law and talking about legal practice, these conundrums, these moments of, is this what we want?
2: You know, it's a good lead into my, Review of the book where I was scouring it for references to your law school career. I kept looking for law school <laughs> notes. I was highlighting it, put little stickies in there, and
3: there. Oh, you didn't see them, invisible ink. There were a few, there uh,
2: but there weren't. We want more, mm-hmm. okay? And um, I did note. Uh, Towards the end of the book, you talked a little bit about the idealism and naivete that you brought to the table as a righteous law student. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what advice do you have for our idealistic law students who are in the crowd today? And we'll be reviewing this later on about (laughs) how to navigate how to navigate law school and how to think about it in the prism of all the ambiguity and nuance that you just talked about.
3: Well, it's kind of funny, I'm looking over my shoulder and like watching myself looking at myself as if I'm reflecting on what I was doing, almost going, yes, dear, tell us. Tell us about what you needed to know, okay? Wonderful. Um, and I have to say, you know, there, I, I equated almost the idea of between knowing something and understanding it. And the University of Minnesota Law School, phenomenal school, we all know this. And it will prepare you for knowledge and you will be enthralled, hopefully, and quite invested in it, and very well prepared. But there's also moments through the maturation of your lives, obviously, particularly because you know, much like doctors and those in medicine, they practice medicine, we practice the law. And part of that practice means that you will grow as an attorney, and it will track in some respects what you knew and now understand. And for me, I look at it almost like being like a train, right? Um, law school is sort of the train that you know the power of a locomotive. You know when those pistons start going that the ferocity of the speed is going to be something unmatchable to the common person, right? You understand the power of it. But then you're on a platform one day and one in actuality whizzes by you. If you've ever been on that platform, what happens? you're kind of taking a step back because the wind and the reverberations are coming and you understand that in theory, it was strong and ferocious. In practice, it took your breath away. and Now you understand the power of that same force in a very different way. And for me, that was the distinction of going from sort of the esoteric discussions about the law. I knew what disproportionate impact was, obviously. I knew what the law, I knew what the Constitution says. I knew what the civil rights are. I knew what all these different a- aspects are. I knew the precedent. But then when you go into a criminal courtroom, or even in a law firm, which I began at Fagri, It was then Fagri and Benson. Now it's Fagry, I think it's Fagry Baker Daniels, Correct. something else, something else. <laughs> I asked for the codes. They said, no. Whatever. Um, it's fine. I'm not bitter. Still at um, <laughs> still, still <laughs> on the table, maybe. Um, But I, you know, going in any courtroom you're in, you're gonna have that moment of knowing something and then it taking your breath away when you see it. For me, it was seeing the parade of black and brown people into a criminal courtroom in Washington, D.C. So much so, Professor, that I remember one of my first days in the courtroom, I had about, I would say about 75 or 80 matters and files stacked high in front of me to handle that day in my first time in this criminal courtroom in DC. And I remember looking around the courtroom and, and looking after a while and turning to one of my colleagues and saying, sorry, where are the white people? And they kind of chuckled and then went on the bench, Coates. And that was it. And I could count on one hand, and the like, really thousands of matters I oversaw over the course of my career there, the number of white defendants I ever saw in the courthouse. Not my courtroom, the courthouse. Washington DC is certainly a diverse place, but there's not a monopoly from black and brown people on crime. So I wondered what this was about. And I had black and brown officers. So it wasn't this sort of easy answer of, oh, it's a notion of the race of a police officer and priorities, no. I had a black US attorney overseeing the office. I had a black president. I had a black attorney general. So what was going on in this notion? And it was those moments of going to understand that I hope as law students, you do something I did not do enough of, which is take the practical um, opportunities to experience the law in practice while in school and asking the questions through your conversations and networks about what, so what's it really like? What did you wish you knew? And also, how do you bridge from knowing to understanding? And it, it often requires having the, the wherewithal and the common sense To bring your entire self into that in that same level of curiosity as well. The things that you questioned in your real life, you should be questioning in the courtroom and asking the professors and talking about it in the books. The judges, what they question and bring in, they're thinking about it as well. So that's what I would do. Is that right, Laura Gale? Okay. (laughs) She's like, you got it. (laughs) And nice highlights.
2: There was a statement you made in the book, Laura, that that really resonated with me. I was on a track at one point in my life where I was simultaneously looking at being a federal prosecutor and being a public defender, mm-hmm. and I had offers in play from both. And you made a statement, this was in a chapter where you were having a conversation with a defense lawyer who was yeah. trying to tell you you had taken the wrong path and you'd ultimately come over to see things her way. And the statement that you made was... Um, I understand the value in being the decision maker rather than having to deal with someone else's decisions. That was a powerful statement for me and it obviously has to do with prosecutorial discretion. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the importance of having people from diverse backgrounds being in positions to execute, uh, to, to exercise prosecutorial discretion and what takes you have on it from being in that world.
3: You know, and this, this chap you're talking about is um, a right seat at the table. And for the record, I was minding my own business at this restaurant when you she approached me. You made it clear. Me. You made that clear. Okay? <laughs> I was having a wonderful escapism-based lunch I used to have with my beautiful friend Emerald over here at law school and be like, let's have an escapism. And I was confronted, okay? Um, and it's interesting because, you know, when I, and first of all, for the law students out there, I am literally the urban legend. I applied through USA Jobs to the Department of Justice and knew no one. It can happen. These needles in the haystack occur, okay? <laughs> Knew no one, and there was a hiring freeze. So lo and behold, right, the universe comes into play. Um, but I would tell you that there is absolute value in understanding the, the decision-making process and whether you want to ex- how you want to exercise discretion. I will say that obviously when this woman approached me, she was a black woman a defense counsel who thought that I was wrong and had the audacity to suggest I believed in civil rights if, and I was also a prosecutor. So it tells you obviously already the the dynamic of it's the either or. Either you can believe in civil rights or you're a prosecutor. What does that say about people's views in the justice system? And in my mind, I think if you're gonna exercise discretion, if you're going to have power in some way, you ought to be bringing people who believe in civil rights to the side of the table that has the power to charge, that has the power to act as a gatekeeper, that has a power and understands the power that when you stand up and you say, Laura codes on behalf of the people of the United States, that includes the defendant. That includes the defendant's fourth amendment rights, that includes you having healthy skepticism about an officer who recites you the script from Graham versus Connor. And you go, I read that too. Now, did you actually have the basis to actually stop this person? Or the use of force directives? And it's not, not that you're against law enforcement. You are an extension and a beneficiary of the same benefits of the doubt that are extended as a prosecutor. And you have to be cautious about that. Because how often have you heard people say, maybe in your own minds, you know what? Well, there is a presumption of innocence and you'd be surprised how often that caveat is sort of dismissed. There's a presumption of innocence, but they wouldn't have stopped them had they not done something. You know, you don't bring a, a case, a federal case against them unless they did something, right? That's problematic, but also works the benefit of a prosecutor who knows that that is extended. It's one of the first questions we ask in the voir dire for any juror to say, would you give more weight to the testimony of an officer because they're an officer? We do that intentionally and we know it because you will give more weight to an officer. Because you're gonna think to yourselves, well, why would the officer coming here to testify and just lie about something? They didn't put a uniform on this morning to lie about something, whether they're the person who's the defendant or not. And in doing so, you realize that you also are the beneficiary of that same sort of privileged benefit of the doubt. So how do you wield that power? Do you want somebody in the position who will challenge and question, and who will understand that you've gotta hand over exculpatory evidence, that the ends can't justify the means, that the, nobody wants to find themselves on the other side of a United States versus, and they're not going to know what you don't, what you already know. The FBI is not giving them files; they're not helping them, and so you have to exercise it responsibly. So when I look at the idea of where I want it to be, whether it's the defense counsel or prosecution, and these are both extraordinarily impactful and meritorious, and should be occupied by anyone who believes in civil rights and a justice system. For me, I thought it was best that I be on the side that made decisions before we got to the point where it could present an exercise in futility to just react. And whereas we often say in the law to a defendant, you don't have to testify, it's your right not to do so. The government's gotta prove the case against you, it's their burden to prove it. You've all heard this, you know this conceptually. Well the dirty little secret is, well that's true, but if I, if I um, am good, and I was, then you need not testify. It's your choice or not. It's almost a foregone conclusion of conviction. And this is not hubris. That's the power of the federal government's resources against an individual. That's the power of the benefit of the doubt. And that's also a reflection of our bail system where when you have people oftentimes who, are, who have committed crimes or are alleged to commit crimes, they're often given a choice and you know. Are they going to make bail and be able to be out? prior to trial. If they are, that's a hell of an advantage. If they're not, they ultimately might make a decision that says either I can't afford, I don't believe in my defense counsel perhaps, I'm, I can't bear what's happening inside this, these, these cell walls. You can think of the extremes of a Khalif Browder having a backpack purportedly stolen and ending up in one of the most notorious jails. You can wonder about what happened to say a Sandra Bland in Texas or any number of the thousands of people right now sitting on a lockup list, getting assigned an attorney perhaps and not being able to make bail. At some point they're going to have to have a calculus of, well look, the prosecutor, they're offering me maybe five years with with maybe a split sentence and I can do a year in and then four years over my head in probation or I risk 10 to 20 years, and I'm looking at my kid, maybe they're in their front row of a courtroom. She's waving again, saying, hi, daddy, hi, mommy, right? (laughs) But in this case, I'm not the defendant. Thank you for making that very real. Appreciate it. You know, um, in those moments. And what are you going to do? Like, what what are you going to do then? So for me, I wanted to be on the side that said, hmm, for the sentencing, for the conviction, for the trial, for the civil rights, for every aspect of it, not because I wanted to be a Trojan horse that essentially excused criminal conduct, that's not what I was about, I believe in accountability, but because I think that if you believe in due process, if you believe the person has a right to a fair trial and you know the deck deck is stacked against them, then what are you gonna do? Be an ethical attorney, an ethical prosecutor, an ethical person who realizes that the weight should not be so burdensome that justice cannot be achieved.
2: I tell a lot of my friends that I'm as proud of the cases I declined as a prosecutor Mm -hmm. as the convictions that I got, which I think really feeds into what you're talking about. Um, I'm gonna ask one more question and then I'm gonna invite everybody in. So if you uh, have a question or are thinking about asking a question, get those words uh, formulated <laughs> in your mind, and I'll solicit your input in a second. But I wanted to ask you about judges for a second, because mm-hmm. we're training our students here to be super respectful of these mythical judges who preside <laughs> over courtrooms that they're going to be populating one day. Mm-hmm. And some of your stories um, depict judges not being their best selves, Imagine right? that. Yeah, I mean, judges that... Um, are not exhibiting judicial temperament, or in some cases, worse. And I just wonder, sort of, what's your takeaway, or what what do you want your reader to sort of take away from the the stories you're telling, and how judges are showing up in those yeah. stories?
3: Well, I have a number of stories that that include judges. Some where judges are even themselves questioning a sentence they've handed down. There's a case where um, it's called, you know, um, uh, the, where it involves a, a, a these two defendants who've been convicted and they are being sentenced for really the duration of their lives in all practical respects, and the judge grappling with this as the family of even the victims are begging for lenience. And being constrained, even in that powerful position, and having their own not attack of conscience, but I would say that sounds too pejorative, the the benefit of a conscience. But knowing they can't do anything about it, even in the position they are in. Their end. And also knowing that as a prosecutor, I mean. The joke is sort of that the, the judge believes they're in control of the courtroom, but actually it's the prosecutor, right? <laughs> it's, that, it's actually the prosecutor, because thank you, Your Honor, for your input, but <laughs> thank, you, thank you so much. If you want to rule my motion, great, that's wonderful. And um, judges' Robbie are like, really, is that true? Because I'll just decline this right now. But it really, a lot of them are obviously coming from trial positions themselves and recognize that there is a level of deference that is owed and it and certainly needs to be there. But there's also the idea that, look, either you are the government presenting your case or you're not. They're not going to help you, they're not gonna like try to hurt you, but it is your case and you're burden at all times. Um, but judges sometimes forget, or they think so, it's almost like the Al Bundy, I think of, um, am I dating myself? Okay, how about something else? It's kind of like, <laughs> all right, something me. else. The idea when the old joke about when it was my day, I had to walk up the hill, you know, to get to my preschool classroom at the age of three, because we went there at two, not four, you dummy, you know? And um, it was like a blizzard every time. Well, judges remember themselves as the best trial attorneys that ever existed. There was no one better. They always did it right. They never would make the error you just made and they'll pat you on the head with a gavel, most of the time with condescension. Other times they are wonderful and you have the range, like you have lawyers, you have the range. Um, what I will take away from the idea is that, you know, while deference is owed, they are also, might, like any other aspect of it, should be viewed with a healthy level of skepticism and no expectation that they will make your case for you or that they even know the law the way you know the law or your particular case. You're all generalists as lawyers and judges see even more of a volume of case than you will see at a daily basis. And they rely on you to present them with the evidence and they're very irritated when you exploit your credibility or the credibility of being a fungible part of the government. I've had times when I remember I was, and I write back in the book, moments when um, you you don't realize how fungible you are as a prosecutor until they say to you, well, actually, Your Honor, I, I actually can't have that trial that day, I'm actually giving birth. And they go, oh, the government's having a baby? Is the whole government having a baby that day? I, really, I didn't realize the government was pregnant today, Ms. Coates, really? How did that happen? The whole government, you're like, I get, I get it, It's so we're having to, okay, that's fine, you know, and you sort of pass it along on what you can do. And, um, and this is real, they would do this, and you'd say, okay, because they realize that, look, you're getting the benefit of the government. So what you say, they take, not with a grain of salt, they believe that you're being truthful. And the second there is a colleague or somebody else who does something wrong, then you're held to that as well and having to deal with it. So I just would, I, I, I talk about judges as they are human beings, including, um, And you shouldn't forget that. And because they're human beings, they sometimes have the same preconceived notions that you would expect of a a juror with no legal courtroom experience. And there's one chapter in particular I can point to, and that is about a a young girl who um, had accused the equivalent of her stepfather of sexual assault over a number of years. It was a delayed reporting case, ones that I have often done over the course of my career. And it wasn't even my trial. And I was in the courtroom for another matter and walking in and watching this young girl walk to the um, witness stand and watching the judge, a woman, watching her reaction to this with this air of complete derision and disgust. I recognized that on the face of what you would know for victim blaming and shaming, her appearance, in her mind was not entitled to be that of what a victim should look like to this judge, or should dress like, or should behave like. You probably thinking, you know, that can't be a judge that had that or even incorporated that into her actual holding. Can't be, because we know in the Me Too era in particular, we say, believe women, believe women. And that's the slogan, and we know this. Well, this is, a, I guess it didn't matter for a girl in that moment and how in a courtroom it, it carries out very differently. And so I want people to be aware of the fact that, the, that you should not <clears throat> assume that there will be um, a level of sophistication, the sense of complete and total objectivity and impartiality. For the same reasons we sort of look at the Supreme Court of the United States where you've all heard a script, if you've ever watched a confirmation hearing, you could probably, if you yourself right now, and I hope one of you will be, one of the people who are eventually nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court. Well, in your hearings, you most assuredly will say something along the lines of when someone asks you, well, what do you feel about Roe v. Wade or this particular case? You'll say, I, it'd be inappropriate for me to comment on a case that might come before me in some form or fashion. And you'll sit back and you'll sort of kick under your desk the law review articles you wrote in the last two years, two days, and two months, and kind of go, I don't know what, what now what do you see here? It'd be inappropriate for me to comment on that in particular, and no, I don't know, when I wear that black robe, I forget myself. No, what do you, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And so you know that that's a familiar script that's used, but there are people who are wearing those robes. And the reason why, although it's obviously media-driven and also our own society-driven to um, assign ideological labels to our Supreme Court justice, this is the conservative wing, the liberal wing, none of them identify themselves as that. There's a reason those are apparent in some respects. And so because we have the reality that there are human beings donning these robes, there'll be human, there'll be human error and choices that are being made. They bring their whole selves in and rely on you to help the, with the law, so why would you leave yourself out of the room? If you're a juror, do you bring your whole self in? Yes. And the prosecutors and defense attorneys know that. So I, I write about it from a real, I, I just try to be, look, if you're gonna speak truth to power, you ought to know what the truth is and be willing to share it, and I do.
2: Let's open it up for questions. Do folks have any uh, questions for Laura? Yes, gentleman up here with his hand up. <clears throat> Good. Good
0: morning, Sunrise. Yesterday, Amir Locke was shot and killed by the police during the execution of a no-knock warrant at 7 a.m. before sunrise. How do we, as people with diverse backgrounds and positions of power, hold police responsible? And is holding police responsible in these manner, in these ways, an actual tool to reduce police brutality? In your opinion,
3: what jurisdiction
0: Um, was? I believe it was Minneapolis. It Minneapolis, was, it was here. It was here.
3: Okay, yeah. and, the re, and it's interesting that I have to even narrow it down because you could have named 50 states where that I'm sure that's happening. There are limited states, of course, where there are no knock warrants now being in effect. For example, in Kentucky, since Breonna Taylor's shooting, there has been um, changes that have been made. But <clears throat> it's not just people of diverse backgrounds who need to hold officers to account for excessive use of force or Fourth Amendment violations and clear civil rights violations. Um, It has to be something that happens not only at the state and local level, but in terms of the federal government's ability to tie the power of the purse to an officer's accountability, either by minimizing the impact of unions or um, requiring the dashboard or body cams that often accompany discussions around no-knock warrants where officers will be able to say, it was a no-knock warrant, but here's what happened, and they relay the narrative to explain and justify the shooting, and guess what? No camera, no recording, the officer's testimony and statements is going to actually be the one that's believed more than anything. Don't believe me? Imagine the Derek Chauvin trial with no videotape. I suspect he'd be patrolling right now. Probably in Minneapolis or anywhere else. And you know that's the case. Because it would be a different narrative that would be drawn. Um, And so there has to be an understanding, I think with the Supreme Court case of and I mentioned Grand versus Connor a number of times for a reason, because I think it's the wrong decision to hold officers to a reasonable officer standard as opposed to a reasonable person standard. Not only does it make it impossible for most prosecutors to be able to, to climb that hurdle and hold an officer accountable even through a grand jury indictment to give a fair trial op- opportunity, um, it forecloses it, but also makes for, for grand jurors and trial jurors, if it gets to that point, unable to decide how they're supposed to view that given the benefit they give to officers but i also think it's about what are the what were the reasons and the and the training as to approach and kill was there a commensurate amount of force being used against the officer was it through a door? Was it in person? Was there a weapon present? Um, did the person express or act in some way that was provocative? Was it more than the script of a furtive gesture, which you'll hear from an officer, it was a furtive gesture towards the waistband, which is code for, this is what I say to get off? What was it? And that's what an officer has to be able to answer to. But what happens is, sometimes the due process within an individual police jurisdiction, because it's a pass, pass around the country, you don't even get to talk to that officer until 10 union hands have hit, touched them and they've got their representatives and advocates and no one wants to be a part of it. So by the time you get to an office you don't have the kind of testimony you want from a victim in another case, where if you get a crime committed against you and you're a witness in one of my cases, you were in the grand jury before you caught your breath within 12 hours. I don't want you changing your mind. I don't want you concocting a story. I don't want people getting to you who are going to intimidate you in some way. I, I don't represent an individual person, I, I represent the society, which means that as much as you might not want to go forward, if I can get this person held accountable for what they've done, I'm preventing the next victim from being victimized. So all these things can change in order to ask about how to, how to really practically do it, if the process could work in a way that is not um, infected by guardrails, that prevent justice, it's an absolutely effective way to be able to use these same tools to hold an officer accountable if they are doing the wrong thing. The problem is special interest groups in the form, of, and I don't mean to demonize unions, I'm not. Just it's re- The reality is they set up guardrails that will prevent you from being able to talk to the officer, yeah? Yes, there'd be an effective deterrent. You know, our whole legal system is based on the prospect of deterrence. The reason we have laws on the books is not because we expect everyone to commit that crime. It's because we expect people to be fearful that if they do commit that crime, there's consequences attached to it. And we assign the sentencing co- that corresponds to what we want people, how much, how deterred you want them to be. The problem is that there's no accountability you become emboldened and it becomes part of training and becomes sort of a wink and a nod of, well I won't be held accountable, this is what we do, here's what, here's what goes down here. So if it's done, if you actually have accountability for excessive use of force, and again, I don't know this case in particular, so I don't know how to, I, I have not evaluated to figure out if this person has indeed used um, the constitutional violation of the Fourth Amendment, um, and that's, that's necessary, do you run that evaluation? but it's an effective deterrent if you have consequences. It doesn't mean that it will stop everyone from committing a crime. We have homicide stats in the book, right? People get murdered every day, but I think we'd have less. You'd have less emboldened officers who are doing the wrong thing. You'd have more vigilance of officers who want their fellow colleagues to do the right thing because it makes it harder for an officer to have to guard against and respond to a distrustful community that expects them to harm, it makes their job more dangerous. And in turn, it creates continuing distrust. So I think it can, if it's an effective deterrent, it will be a deterrent. Yes, good question. I saw your hand you go up. Professor. Hi, how are you? Good, good. The Powell not the House yeah. case, the judge in that case, we all follow What are your, your opinions about that judge and how that trial ended? I mean, I think we all kind of expected it to end like it did and what appalled at the behavior of the judge? Well, the judge, while quirky is the word I'll use, is not such an aberration in terms of what you will see about judges on benches who intend to control their courtroom how they see fit and you would think that the camera on them would make them conform to certain behavior, but it might instead have the opposite effect of digging in one's heels and this is how I'm gonna be. This is me, this is who I am. And if, and if it's a judge, not in this case, if it's, a, if it's a judge under Article Three with lifetime tenure, okay. I've had judges eating Cheetos on the bench while a, te- a victim cried. Um, because shopping for shoes. Shopping for shoes, describing a rape, because they can. And what are you gonna do about it when they do? Um, But that trial in particular, I think was a really exquisite practical experience for law students in particular, to see that there's a disconnect oftentimes between what you're able to demonstrate and the hurdles of the prosecutor and what the facts will actually present to you, right? There's the notion of, here's what's been talked about in the court of public opinion, and here's why this is going to go this one way, and it's coming off the heels of other high-profile cases and ahead of other high-profile cases, not involving even, off- he's an officer, of course. But that was a case study, really, in the idea of trying to understand what intent looks like as a proof requirement. And every element of your crime must be met for you to carry that burden and the idea of how one goes about doing that. And mind you, people are talking about the judge because it obviously was a colorful you know, moment. But the facts and the way to present the case, if, if, the, if you're the prosecution, everyone's focusing on the judge, I'm not sure what the evidence was able to really demonstrate and prove. And um, there's a reason you, you, you can name certain attorneys Right, The Johnny Cochran's of the world, for example. Um, there's a reason you might you know, understand a courtroom drama, but it's not because you're talking about the judge. And so those theatrics, I think were impactful to see how really it works. But on another note though, you know, there's something about the power of having the money to hire trial consultants and play out time and time again what she was able to do. And I mean the trial consultants are like the OJ era, trial consultants. We're talking about a lot of money. They're not doing it like pro bono, like oh, I feel like I should today. <laughs> sure, why not? I have free time. I don't like money. Um, and so you're talking about that caliber, who is pocketing, who is financing that? And the reason that's important is because most defendants who are involved in homicide trials, for example, are sitting in a jail pending their trial and their lawyer is able to come by every so often, and normally the week of, to really drill down what they're talking about, and they ask "Do you wanna testify, you don't get to rehearse it. There's not a focus group, and there are focus groups to figure out, on the one hand, here's the full trial if Rittenhouse testifies. Here's how they decided. Here's a full trial when he did testify, and here's how it goes, and then you get to figure out what were the moments that I really liked about it. Here's the moments I wanted you to be more choked up. Here are the moments I really felt like the cherub face, um, face was gonna work for you in some respects. And here's what I want you to be doing when you're at the desk, when, you're doodling, when you doodling. You want know, your mom to be over there, like my beautiful mother is. Hello, okay, why am I defending defendant every time these scenarios? <laughs> oh, I don't know, um, let me knock on wood for a second. Good <laughs> God. Um, and here's what I want you to do. Imagine, imagine that that's not what, I'm gonna say 99.999% of defendants have. And you have all these you know, ideas coming and you have the idea of, of the Second Amendment and gun control and guns rights having a, on the backdrop, which no one really talks about. You have to know the audience and the jury pool. And that included people who remembered what, these, um, you know, what the scene of the purported riots looked like and are gun owners themselves. And so villainizing gun ownership is not the tactic. Thinking about the idea of a time when you're talking about when you had a president at the time, talking about how law enforcement in these certain blue cities and whatnot, as they were talking about it, um, that they weren't doing effective law enforcement. They were calling on people to, to sort of raise up in a way to usurp that authority. And here's this purported young kid coming in to do this. So all these different factors are coming into play that you may not be conscious of, but it's all being worked out in trials before you even see it, before you even see the judge. And to me, that has to be a a big focus on what it must be like for those defendants who will never even know what a jury consultant is, let alone have multiple bites of the apple for a focus group. And then you've got, and I'll I'll extend this benefit of the doubt, perhaps um, to Kyle Rittenhouse, and that is um, the circumstances he found himself in being used as the poster child for narratives and talking points and causes that he might not align with and having to counteract that narrative even in his own defense, very difficult case.
2: Time for one more question and a quick answer, (laughs) at least. Well,
3: I gotta go, we're kidding. (laughs) You know, oh gosh, I'm, I'm laughing only because I pivot a lot in my life, and I do it unapologetically. And I don't want, I know I remember in law school there was like the alternative law career segment of career services, and I think and there was the big law firm, and there was the idea of government, and you was kind of like, you gotta pick right now where you're going to be. I would encourage you to do what you want to do. And that might seem like, oh, easy to say. No, I would encourage you to do what you want to do. What interests you? What makes you tick? If you would like, litig- I, I started as a litigator in private practice and I loved it. I thought it was really great work. I was very intrigued by it. I thought it was amazing to do it. And I cut my teeth on writing and brief writing. And, if, and that's gonna be a very effective part of being a prosecutor as well, being able to, through your motion practice, persuade what you can't do even in trial later on. So I would say whatever path you take, as long as you're passionate about it, it's gotta include becoming a stronger writer it's gotta include extraordinary fluency in, um, especially in the federal government, in constitutional rights. And you should be looking at opportunities to write in either journals, either in law school, and if you're not doing that, that's fine. I was in moot court, and there's my coach right there. Hello. Um, <laughs> we, did we win, win that year what we did? Okay, I just wanna put that out there, okay. Like nationals, though? Nationals, okay, great. I oh, heard. That, that went, okay, anyway. Um, Leave that out there, right there. Um, But the idea of you know writing constitutional law, writing outside of law school, continuing to write a lot if you can get your um, your hands on things, and then finally getting as much courtroom experience as you can, even if it means in um, second tiering somebody or asking partners in a law firm to accompany to let you shadow them in some way or go in with them. You can do a securities route. But ultimately, you know, I know clerkships are part of it as well. I did not do a clerkship. Like I said, I applied to USA Jobs and it was the voting section I wanted to be in and that's where I went. So I would just say, do what you're passionate about, but you've gotta accumulate the skills that will make you better in the end. That includes writing, advocacy, and the art of persuasion. However it gets you there, that's what you should do. And then of course, ethics, full stop.
2: So the book is fantastic. Um, I was thinking about teaching a criminal justice class where the class just reads a story each week and then we discuss it and then we move on to the next week because yeah. there's so much richness in each of the stories. and. Laura really does. Keep a, the
3: picture of me the entire well, time over that. <laughs> we might want
2: to vary the visuals from time to time, but it's a nice start. It's a nice start. Um, but this but but the stories are selected really thoughtfully, they're told so vividly, and Laura does a really nice job at the end of pulling some of the threads together. So thank you. I commend it. Uh, I know we're all proud, those of us who are affiliated with this law school, to be affiliated with the place that produced you. And we thank you for the impact that you've made in so many different ways, as a prosecutor, and as a expert pundit, and now as an author, uh, reflecting so, I think, thoughtfully on the criminal justice system. We really appreciate your contributions. And should you want to uh, have a book signed by Laura, just head on down to the bookstore. Um, She'll be there till 1.30, signing her book. I guess, actually, since you-
3: Or just say hi, that's fine. Or say hi,
2: but I guess, (laughs) you should have a chance for a brief closing statement as a former prosecutor. So I shouldn't be the one to close. You should be the one to close. Do you have any closing statement you'd like to make?
3: I rest my case. (laughs) (laughs) Thank
2: you, everybody.
1: Thank you.
0: (laughs) This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn and subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.